Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I have several themes that are going to kind of interconnect tonight as we look through the scriptures. I want you to think with me along this first theme, though. God's will or my will? God's will or my will? It's a daily battle, is it not? God, your will or my will? Now we can pray when we pray together, Lord, your will be done. And we can say yea and amen, but when it comes right down to it, sometimes it's a whole other issue, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to give in to the Lord. Sometimes it's easy to bow. Sometimes you see the blessing. Sometimes you see the rationale. Sometimes you see, oh, of course, Lord, yes, I'll be happy to do your will in this situation. But then sometimes where you don't see the, the rationale quite so clearly, then it becomes a bit of a struggle. But, 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 and it ceases to be Lord, it, it turns to God. But God, <laughs> not Lord, but God. See, because when it's Lord, you go, oh, bow my knee. So your will or my will? It's a daily battle. And we're going to see that this evening as it's worked out in Saul's life and David's life. But to understand the background to Saul and David, I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Now, when we read through the book of Judges, the days of the Judges were characterized by three things, religious apostasy, political disorganization, and social chaos. If you look at the life of the nation, they were a mess, an absolute mess, for hundreds of years. Then every so often, God would raise up a leader, a, a judge, some, who would lead them for uh, a period of years, and they would bring some kind of organization, bring them back to worshiping the Lord. And as soon as the guy would pass off the scene, they'd go right back into that chaotic situation. Do you remember reading all that? Now, this is a precondition. The state of the nation in the book of Judges is a precondition for what we're going to see when the nation, when the elders of Israel come to Samuel... And they ask for a king. Now remember, Israel was called by God to be a theocracy. That was to be a nation ruled by Theos, God. God was to be the ruler. God was to be the sovereign king. And because of their condition for hundreds of years under the, under the days of the judges, it led them right out of that period under Samuel's... Uh, time with them, the, the, the condition of the nation hadn't changed. They were still apostate. And they were looking around and they were told here in this passage in chapter 8, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at, served at Beersheba. And his sons did not walk in his ways. And they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together 
and had a committee meeting. There's no mention of prayer here. And they came to Samuel and they said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Now notice the next phrase. Such as all the other nations have. We want to be like all the other nations. Now they knew that, the, that their life was chaotic. They knew there was disorganization. They knew there were problems, but they had gotten their eyes off of the Lord and they, they wanted to be like all the other nations have a king who would bring order to them. And they had no hope in Samuel's sons. They had no place else to turn, so they thought. And so they said to Samuel, appoint a king for us. Now that, that whole scenario, and God incidentally goes to Samuel, or Samuel goes to God and says, God, they want a king. And to his surprise, God says, give them one. I'll show you which one, though. And, of course, uh, God is going to lead Samuel to a young man by the name of Saul, who is going to be a king after the heart of the people. And then, of course, David will be a king after God's own heart. Big difference between the two. But you have to understand the preconditions and in the, in the, all the social, religious, political environment to the setting up of the kingship, the monarchy in Israel. They are going to reject God. God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. But is God still in control? Absolutely he's in control. He's still going to rule the nation, isn't he? Now Saul is going to be the king that God's going to have Samuel anoint. And Saul is to be one who is not to rule autocratically. He is to rule as God guides him and leads him. Now that's a very key thought. Because the same thing is true for you and I. We, are, we do not belong to ourselves. Do you know that? We've been bought with a price. The king sits on the throne. But he gives us authority. He gives us authority to run our lives, but according to whose design? So his will, not ours. Saul was to govern Israel according to God's will, not his own. And we're going to look at how he governed Israel and draw a comparison between his rule and David's. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23... These three words, above all else. Above all else. This is the most important thing. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean, guard your heart? I think what he means is this. If we bring this down to our own lives, I think that our greatest challenge as Christians, especially today, our greatest challenge as Christians is to develop a godly character. To develop a godly character. Character is, somebody said, what a person is when no one is watching. When no one else is around. You can demonstrate a godly character when other people are watching you, right? 
You can mind your P's and Q's. You can be on your toes. You can be in order. But then when no one else is around, when no one else sees, what are you like? Is your life consistent? Are you the same? Are you the same in the church and in the world? Or are you different? And so our greatest challenge, if, if we're to take the writer of the Proverbs seriously, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. I think he's talking about developing a godly character, and that is our greatest challenge today in the midst of all that's competing for our attention and all that seeks to draw us away. A godly character. Does that make sense to you? The essence of a godly character is a thing called integrity. 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 Are you a man of integrity? Are you a woman of integrity? Integrity is an uncompromising adherence. Uncompromising adherence to a, a code of values that is evidenced by truthfulness, honesty, candor, and sincerity. You are a dependable person. When you say yes, boy, you can set your time by it. Integrity is the essence of a godly character. And integrity and obedience go hand in hand. You can't be a person of integrity without being a person of obedience. Integrity and obedience go hand in hand. Now this developing of a godly character is a lifetime process of God's lessons. It's a lifetime process of God's lessons. God is teaching us through multitudes of ways, multitudes of situations, multitudes of trials, opportunities. God is a master engineer. He is engineering all sorts of events, all sorts of issues, and presenting us with choices every single day over our whole lifetime. He wants us to make choices that reflect integrity, obedience to his will, understanding of his will, Developing a godly character. It's a lifetime process. And everybody's own life experience, everybody's own process is uniquely different from somebody else's. Now, there are great similarities between all of us. We all struggle. We all have trials. We all have joys. We all have opportunities. But they're all different. My life, in, in the specifics and in the details of it, is is incredibly different from Henry's life, but our lives are tremendously similar. He's much older than I am, of course. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. <laughs> but you can't look at somebody else's life and say, oh, you know, they have it so much better. So much worse. Whatever. You've got to focus on what's going on in your life and face it with integrity. 
and obey God with whatever he lays across your path. He's giving you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness, obedience, integrity, and in so doing, he's building into you a godly character. And there's this divine human partnership. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, because God's at work in you, both to do and to will his good pleasure. And so when we get a hold of that, we understand that God's working. He's doing things. He's arranging things. He's setting things up. He's speaking to me. And I need to be sensitive and cooperating and participating, saying, Lord, your will be done. And mean that every single day. When you get up in the morning, you pray that prayer I shared with you last week. Lord, it's you and me today. I don't know what you have in store for me today. But whatever it is, it's you and me. And I am committed now by your grace and strength to maintain a steadfast course with you. So it's a lifetime process. You're not going to get there overnight. That's a source of great relief to me. Because I have a tendency to put myself really under a pile. And I get bummed out. Boy, when I, when I fall, when I fail, when I mess up, when I don't do what I know God's called me to do, and I, I go, oh, Lord. And, I, you know, I have a tendency to look and say, this is where I'm going to be forever. Oh, I hate myself. And, da, 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 da. and then God says, hey, wake up. I'm still here and I'm still working. And I'm going to kick your booty tomorrow a little differently. <laughs> And you're not going to be the same tomorrow, the next day, next month, next year that you are today. You're going to be further ahead. So he lifts my head. He lifts my head. Like the song Casey sang. He's the lifter of my head. So he lifts me up. And he, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I, I'm, not, I'm not yet what I ought to be, but I thank you, Lord, that I'm not what I was. And I thank you the hope that, that you're working in me. You're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. Even in the face of my foolishness and faithlessness, you're carrying me along. And I just need to learn how to cooperate more consistently. Can anybody relate to this? Yes. Or am I the only one? God's approach is to work in you, in me. His approach is to work in us, building that godly character with us cooperating to produce spirit-filled Christians. How do you know when you got a spirit-filled Christian? You see the fruit of the spirit evidence in that person's life. You see the fruit of the spirit. And the more consistently you see the fruit of the spirit being evidence in that person's life, you know you have a person who is cooperating with God. Who is, who is evidencing a godly character. Character like God's. Resembling Him. And so He works in us first. And then as He continues to develop this character, then He begins to work through us. He doesn't work through you until He begins to work in you. And then as He works through you, He does so to produce great things as he has gifted you and called you. Isn't that glorious? That's, God, that's how God works. The goal for us, the goal for us 
Finish well. Finish well. Run the race, the whole race. Fix your eyes on the prize, the finish line. Persevere to the end, Jesus said. Fight the good fight of faith. See, that's the goal. Finish well. There's lots and lots of people who start well. Lots and lots of people with wonderful potential. I've seen them come and go. You read Matthew chapter 13 and the, the, the parable of the sower and the seed, and Jesus himself talks about people who start well, but because there's no depth to their life or they, they're so involved in the cares of this world, they never finish. They never finish. And so we need to be people who have our, have our eyes on the goal, people who are persevering, running the race, intent on finishing well. Some people say, well, I just want to finish. <laughs> I, just, I just want to finish. Don't settle for just finishing. Pick it up. Let's finish well. And bring him the glory that he deserves. How is it if you're a parent and your child just kind of wants to get by? How does that affect you as a parent? Oh, hallelujah, whenever my kid just wants to get by. <laughs> does that bring you great glory? Are you real excited about that? No, you want your kid to finish well, don't you? So how, if you feel that way about your kid, how do you think our Heavenly Father feels about us? He wants us to finish well. He wants us to run the race. You don't have to come in first, but just run your little heart out. You may wind up third or fourth in the race. It doesn't matter. The fact is, he knows that you put out and you finished well. And you will demonstrate a godly character. A godly character. Now I want, to, I want us to look at Saul's life, David's life a little bit. To illustrate these things, I want to examine the process. Very interesting. The process of character development or non-development in the lives of these two men. Now if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, in your notes, you'll see that Saul exhibits early promise. He shows great promise. This guy has all kinds of potential. Three things marked his life. The first one is this. It's in verse 2 of chapter 9. He was distinguished by a, a striking physical appearance, a superior appearance. We're told... In verse 2, that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others. This guy really looked good. And incidentally, in the context of the ancient Near East, he really fit in with uh, the expectations of ancient Near Eastern people who they would want as a king. They would want someone bigger than everybody else, more powerful, impressive looking. So Saul was the ticket, boy. He had it all, at least it looked like on the outside. Secondly, he possessed several highly 
commendable personal qualities. Let me give you some examples. Humility, chapter 9, verse 21. In that passage, when Samuel speaks to him and says that he is, in fact, the, the, uh, uh, the one who would be the desire of all of Israel, he says, who, me? I'm, I'm the smallest tribe. I'm the least. Me? So he demonstrates genuine humility at that point. In chapter 9, verse 5, we see that when he's going out to, to try to find, locate his father's donkeys, that he exhibits a considerate attitude for his father. He's concerned that his father will worry about him. So he says to the servant, let's go back, lest my father be worried. So he's very considerate of his father. In chapter 10, verse 27, we see uh, his discreetness. And that has to do with when uh, there was mixed acceptance of him as king over Israel after he'd been anointed. People didn't accept him. They didn't bring him gifts. They despised him. The writer says, but Saul kept silent. He didn't make a big deal about it. He was very discreet about that. He exhibited great courage. In chapter 11, verse 6, we see that he takes the battle to the Amalekites. Or the Ammonites, I'm sorry. To the Ammonites. And displays great courage, great valor. So he's a courageous man. In chapter 11, verse 13, we see a generous spirit. In fact, after the Ammonites are defeated and the people confirm, they're all one now to support Saul as the king. Some people come along and say, well, what about those guys that weren't for you in the beginning? Let's kill them. And Saul exhibits a very generous attitude when he says, no one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. So he's very magnanimous in that sense. It doesn't, doesn't take it out on those who didn't accept him. In chapter 16, verse 21, we see that he has a great capacity for love. The writer says that he loved David greatly. So Saul possesses not only great physical stature, but he possesses intrapersonal qualities that are extremely admirable and we would seek to have in our own life, wouldn't we? And thirdly, he has a very special equipping now from God when he became king. The Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon him. Changed him, the Bible says, into a different person. And he prophesied as an evidence that he was a different person. Chapter 10, verses 6 and 9 through 10. Then in chapter 10, verse 26... God gave him a group of valiant men whose hearts God had touched. God changed men and gave him a group of valiant men, fighters, to be with him. And to crown all this off, God gave him a spectacular military victory which set him up as the king, high in the confidence of all the people, chapter 11, verse 12. So you see, he has great promise. I mean, this guy has everything going for him, would you say? I mean, he has tremendous physical stature, tremendous, tremendous intrapersonal qualities about him. He's got the anointing from God. He's got valiant anointed men around him. God's just given him a tremendous victory. The whole nation is rallying with him. They believe in him. Woo, the stage is set. Man, exciting things can happen through Saul. Now, what's he going to do with all of this that he possesses now? 
What's he going to do with it? Well, sadly, chapters 13 through 16, we see his decline. I want you to turn to chapter 13. Now, there are three, three elements to this decline. The first is irreverent presumption. Irreverent presumption. The second will be rash willfulness. Rash willfulness. And the third will be a combination of disobedience and deceit. I want to point these out. The third one is a combination of disobedience and deceit. In chapter 13, verses 2 through 15, I want you to look at this with me. We're told that Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, and he's going to go to war and attack the Philistines. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, in other words, they were outnumbered big time by the Philistines, and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They deserted. Saul remained, however, at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. I mean, they were just about to be overrun uh, terribly by the Philistine armies. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So Saul panics. Saul panics. And he moves in irreverent presumption. That means he takes matters into his own hands. Look what he does. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now you'd think on the surface of it, okay, see, before they go into war, they're supposed to bring an offering to the Lord. But Saul takes on himself, the king, the prerogative only that the priest possesses. The priest is to offer the offering. The king is not to do it. And so he presumes irreverently to do that which only the priest was to do, and he does so out of panic. He freaks out. His situation, it looks to him like he's going down. There's no hope, so he takes matters into his own hands. Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Wouldn't you know it? (laughs) He has no sooner finished making the offering than here comes Samuel right on the scene. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. What have you done? Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. 
So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Underline that sentence. So I felt compelled. He was moving on the basis of his emotions. He did that which God never called him to do. I felt compelled to offer the sacrifice. And Samuel says, well done. You did good. Sorry I was late. It's a good thing, it's a good thing you took up for me. No, that's not what he says. That's not what he says at all. He says, you acted foolishly. He says, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he... Now get this, look at this. If he had waited, if he had trusted in the Lord, if he had not panicked and waited for Samuel, would Samuel have showed up? Yes, Samuel would have showed up. Does God see what's going on? Every detail. We go... He says, if you had kept, if you have not kept the command of the Lord, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. It would have not been the city of David, it would have been the city of Saul. It would have not been the star of David, it would have been the star of Saul. All the Davidic and promises and the covenant that God made with David, he would have made with Saul. Jesus would have come from Saul's line. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And he goes on and he says this. He says, but now, but now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Obvious meaning is that Saul's heart is not after the Lord's. And appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Well, you'd think that Saul would learn from that, but he doesn't. Look at chapter 14. Here we see him acting in rash willfulness. Chapter 14. Again, in pursuit of their enemy, the Philistines, Saul's son Jonathan begins to rout the Philistines and put them to flight. Now Saul, in verses 18 and 19, you see something happen here. Saul says to Abijah, bring the ark of God. And at that time, this was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now he's hearing all this commotion in the Philistine camp, and with stupid impatience, he cuts short his inquiry of the Lord, tells the priest to withdraw his hand, and rushes his men off without guidance. 
Have you ever acted in rashness, out of impatience, been unwilling to wait upon the Lord, inquiring of the Lord, waiting for an answer, and gone off and done some stupid, foolish thing? Then he compounds it by telling his men, commanding his men to fast. Now they've got the Philistines on the run. But he is going to be real spiritual, calls his men to a fast and pronounces a death penalty. Anyone who doesn't keep the fast. And what ends up happening is the men don't have the strength to pursue the Philistines anymore. And then his son Jonathan doesn't even hear about the command for the fast. He eats and is only saved by the intercession of some of the people. So Saul makes a foolish, foolish mistake here. Because he doesn't wait on the Lord and he doesn't inquire of the Lord. And, and while they're inquiring of the Lord, while the priest has the ark, they're inquiring of the Lord what they should do. He says, I haven't got time. I haven't got time. I've got to go do this. Do you ever not have time to inquire of the Lord? But it comes even more, there comes even more a more serious failure in chapter 15. Turn there with me. We see his downward spiral. In chapter 15, we see this combination of disobedience and deceit. Now this is very, very tragic. Now what's happening is... Saul is going out. He's been given a commission to fight against the Amalekites and indeed to wipe them out. If you look at... uh, uh, So where am I? I lost my place here. Okay, chapter 15. Verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. So God is remembering what the Amalekites did to Israel on their way out of Egypt hundreds of years ago. So now he's going to even the score with the Amalekites. They were very cowardly people and a, a, a very evil people. He says, I will punish them. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, everything. So Saul summoned the men, mustered them, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. He went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. What's he supposed to do? Destroy him. But he takes, uh, he takes a trophy. Now you need to understand, in, in ancient Near Eastern custom, when one the conquering king would take the conquered king alive as a trophy. And he would hamstring him or cut off his thumbs or his toes. Uh, He would do something to humiliate him, uh, but he would have to have him as a live trophy. 
And so you see Saul's ego showing through here. So he takes Agag alive, and all his people he just totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel was very, very fond of Saul. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own... <laughs> Woo in his own honor. And he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, Wonderful. Right? No. Samuel said, What then, if you've done the Lord's instructions, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, now get this, look at, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. The soldiers. He says, they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul said. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, truly humble, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. <laughs> I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. Oh, man, oh, man. You see Saul's character just breaking up right in front of your own eyes. No integrity, no obedience. You can't depend on the guy. He started well. But as he got into the race, he faded quickly. And then from this point on, the decline gets even steeper. You see in chapters 28 through 31, in his final failure, he seeks out a witch. He seeks to inquire of the Lord, but he's not getting any word from the Lord. God's not speaking to him through any prophets, through the Urim, through, through dreams, nothing. God is not speaking to him. And so you'd think he'd just sit and wait. You'd think he would cry out. You'd think he'd offer sacrifices and repentance. But what does he do? He goes and seeks a witch. He turns to occult practices. And then the ultimate end, is, of course, is his own suicide. And so you see this tra tragic downfall 
of this man's life. Saul's two great sins are first the sin of presumption and secondly the sin of disobedience to God. He presumed, meaning he took matters into his own hands. And whenever you step out and start taking matters into your own hands, there's always a corollary to that, and that corollary will be disobedience to the Lord. And behind both of these sins was impulsive, unsubdued self-will. Self-will. Not your will, my will. I can't wait. I have an agenda, and I've got to rush to see to it that my agenda is fulfilled. There were four stages of a ruinous selfism in Saul. It began way back, or at least we got visibility of it way back in chapter 10, verse 22, with a self-sensitiveness. He was very self-conscious. After Samuel had anointed him and then was going to present him to the people, he looked around, he called him out, and Saul was nowhere to be found. He said, where is Saul? And they said, he's hiding. He's hiding among the baggage. He's hiding in a, in a storage place. Very, very self-conscious. It's not humility. He's very self-conscious. And if, you, if you're a self-conscious person, self-sensitive person, unless you learn to manage that, then that self-consciousness, self-sensitiveness will turn into self-assertiveness. You will take matters into your own hands and you will feel a need to assert yourself. And that automatically leads you down the road of destruction just like it did Saul. In order to manage self sensitiveness or self-consciousness, you've got to be willing to recognize it and then confess it to somebody and say, I need you to help me hold myself, my feet to the fire so that I become others conscious, not self-conscious. Because a self-conscious person becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And they begin to become more and more self-assertive. You begin to see real selfishness surface in their life. And that leads to self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. And you see Saul's self-centeredness in his absolute paranoia with David. On one hand, he loved David with all of his heart, but he couldn't stand the sound of that song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He was so self-centered, so self-willed, he couldn't stand the thought. And David, in fact, was no real competition to him. But it drove him so that he was, he was, he was compulsively chasing David all over the countryside, uh, having to kill David. And this, of course, leads to the fourth stage, and this is self-destructiveness. When a person follows that path, they end up in self-destruction. The one vital condition the one vital condition for true fulfillment in life. Saul missed it. The one vital condition for true fulfillment in life is, guess what? Obedience to the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. Developing a godly character. Obeying God. 
to let self get the upper hand in our life is to miss the best and court the worst. Court the worst. In contrast, David's life exhibits a continual attitude of dependence upon the Lord. A continual attitude of dependence. He prays. He prays continually as, as revealed in the Psalms. He prays for God's strength in Psalm 59 in the passage we read this week. He prays for confidence in Psalm 56. He prays for refuge from his enemies in Psalm 142. He gives thanks for God's encouragement in Psalm 34. And he gives thanks for God's protection in Psalm 63. Thank you, Lord, for your protection. Thank you for your provision. Thank you that my life is in your hands. He prays always. Secondly, he continually inquires of the Lord. He can, this is fascinating. There's several passages, probably a good eight or ten passages, where uh, the, the record says that David inquired of the Lord. I want you to look at one with me in 1 Samuel chapter 30. April 4th. This is the first eight verses. Now David was living in a place called Ziklag. And he goes out to war, goes out to battle. And while he's gone, Amalekites raided the city he lived in. And they carried off all the inhabitants, all the families, all the children, all the wives, and so forth. David and his men come back to Ziklag. They found it destroyed by fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, and uh, he was greatly distressed because the men talked of stoning him. So he's got grief on both sides. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Now look at this. You would think that upon coming back to Ziklag, that David would rally his men and say, let's go get them, right? Go after the Amalekites, wouldn't you? Wouldn't we do that? We'd not waste any time, would we? What does David do? David says this. He says to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought, uh, brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord. David takes time to say, Lord, what would you have me do? He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He's not impulsive. He's not rash. He's not irreverently going to take things into his own hands. He says, Lord, what would you have me do? This is awesome. Would we be rushing off, probably, to rescue our families? He inquires of the Lord. And the Lord says, pursue them, and you will certainly overtake them and succeed in their rescue. Thirdly, David twice spares Saul's life. Saul's asleep. David comes upon him. The first occasion, David and his men are hiding in a cave. Saul goes in to take a nap. He's laying down. David's buddies go, that's Saul. He's trying to kill you now. Oh, look at God's delivered him into your own hands. Now you can drive your spear right through and be done with him. David says, no, I'll not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. God wants to remove him. God can do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be guilty of bloodshed. Twice. Twice he spares Saul's life. Here's a man who understands that his life and his destiny is in God's hands. He doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. 
and dispose of Saul himself, given the opportunity twice. Do you suppose that God was behind that? That's a powerful test, isn't it? How many of us would take an opportunity to wipe that guy out? <laughs> Be done with this problem, this thorn in my side. But not David. David says, no, no, I ain't going to bite. Not on this one. Fourthly, this is amazing to me. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, David is willing to listen. He is permeable to wise counsel, even from a woman. This is unheard of in ancient cultures. It's unheard of today. <laughs> Most men very rarely listen to their wives. Becky, that's not true in your house, is it? Does Clyde listen to you? Did he take good counsel from you? No? I want to see you after the service, brother. He's willing to listen to Abigail. And Abigail gives him wise counsel and saves David from doing something very foolish. And lastly, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27, you see David, at the news of Saul's death and Jonathan's death, David laments. David grieves. He doesn't rejoice. He doesn't say, hallelujah, finally Saul's out of my hair. He says, how the mighty have fallen. And in his heart, he's grieved. He's grieved. Genuinely. This is a man who exhibits godly character. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Godly character. Not someone who gets even. Not someone who gloats over the fallenness of his enemy. But someone who grieves over the loss of a precious being. No matter how foolish they were no matter what they've done. And you and I, as we develop godly characters, we will be more and more like God. The Bible says God doesn't wish that any should perish. He weeps at the very thought of people perishing. He's grieved. And so the more you and I become like him, the more you and I develop godly characters, the more you and I walk in obedience to him, you're going to find yourself with an increasing compassion for the lost. You will be compelled to minister. You won't be able to do anything else. You'll be walking in obedience to the Lord. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are faithful, that your plans for us are good and wonderful. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be men and women set aflame by your spirit. Lord, that we have a vision to finish well, to develop godly character, participate with you in what you're doing in our lives. Lord God, strengthen us as we come to your table and I pray that your grace would be made evident in our lives, that we would leave here tonight different people, more excited, more challenged, looking forward for those opportunities that are before us that you've placed there.
that we can demonstrate faithfulness, honor you, inquire of you, wait upon you. Lord God, we worship you tonight. Ushers, will you please come and serve the congregation communion as the ushers come and bring you the communion elements. Hold on to them. Don't As I was sitting down contemplating that one word, presumption. And that's an area in my life where God has really spoken to me that I presume sometimes to take matters into my own hands. And you say, well, how far do you carry it? Do you you talk to the Lord, you ask the Lord about everything, about whether I should eat cornflakes or grape nuts in the morning? Or... <laughs> no, but certainly about the significant issues of life. Certainly about the, the day. I think that sometimes we get caught up in our very, very busy schedules and our own little worlds. And we... We presume we take matters into our own hands. And we wonder why we're frustrated, tired. God never seems to talk to you. Or at least if he is, you can't hear him. Now's the time, just right now, I know for me to reaffirm, and I get to do this five times this weekend. And God really spoke to me last night about presuming and the sin of presumption. And he just, boy, he just got my attention. And I just thanked him all night, all day, reminded again right now that, that his grace, as he reminds us because he's gracious about these things, that his grace will strengthen us once we become aware, once we, once we wait. Henry shared with me that just the other day, he inquired of the Lord. God actually answered. Wonderful, huh? But as we come to the Lord's table, whether it be things of omission or commission, failures, weaknesses, inabilities, fears, anxieties, <coughs> physical disabilities. The Bible says God's grace is sufficient. If certainly not to heal you or totally deliver you, but to strengthen you and to sustain you in the midst of whatever. And now's the time as we, as we tangibly engage the elements that not only are representative of, but in fact, I think conduits of God's grace by faith. To come to him and say, Lord, as I eat this bread, and as I drink this juice, strengthen me. My faith is in you. I'm taking you in by faith. You nourish me. You nurture my life. You know these areas I'm struggling with. You know my failures. I come to you with godly sorrow. And I ask you for your grace and your strength, your healing power, your sustaining power.
Do you suppose that's God's will? I think so. Do you suppose you think it's God's will to bless his people and to strengthen and sustain them? I think so. So we're totally within the context of his will and asking these things and trusting that as we receive the elements by faith that God will, in fact, meet those needs. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said, this is my body given for you. He broke the bread, passed it amongst the disciples. He said, take and eat. Take me into you. Make me the source of your sustenance, your life. And so we say, let's eat. And then he passed the cup amongst them and he told them that it was the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which would be shed for their sins. Our sins have been forgiven. All of our sins have been already dealt with, already paid for. The sins we committed in the past, the sins we've committed today, the sins we'll commit tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, they've all already been paid for. They've already been dealt with. From his end, we still yet need to deal with some of them. But it's all because of his blood. His blood has paid the final price. He died. Paid that price. The wages of sin is death. And so he said, this cup, receive it often and as often as you do. Remember me. Jesus, we remember you. We thank you for your gracious giving of your life for us. While we were still yet your enemies, you died for us. When we could care less, we, we mocked you, we laughed at you, we mocked those who came and told us about you. You still died for us. You loved us so much. And so now with 2020 hindsight, we toast you. We say thank you, we worship you. And all by faith shall we drink the cup. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. 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 Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen.